Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. some structure um, and for her she says it's the greatest pleasure known to her to do that it feels that there's a certain kind of order that she is discovering in, in writing about it it comes together from Brandeis University welcome to recall this book where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues problems and events so how do we do this by looking at books that shape the world we inherited. Today, uh, as usual, your hosts are me, John Plotz, hello, and uh, my favorite anthropologist to my left, Elizabeth Ferry, hello, Elizabeth. Very favorite. <laughs> Wait, did you think, you think you were my second favorite? <laughs> <laughs> Clifford Geertz is second, yeah. Malinowski is third, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and the questions that bring us here today are subtle philosophical ones about telling and writing stories and about how telling and writing stories about our lives have the, has the potential to change those lives. So in other words, what difference does it make to how we live when we invent stories that explain the meanings of our lives? What about inventing life stories that are in some sense fictional? So in order to open up this discussion, we'll range from modernist literature to uh, modern experiments in what's sometimes called auto-fiction, and also arrive, um, courtesy of my favorite anthropologist, at a brilliant recent ethnography that explores how American narratives about social mobility have changed in the past decade. Okay, so subtle, philosophical, um, deep questions, far deeper than me or Elizabeth, so it's a good thing that we have a subtle philosopher to help us explore these questions. Sitting further to Elizabeth's left is the Wellesley philosopher Helena de Vries, author of many uh, interesting and influential articles, including The Many, Not the Few, Pluralism about global distributive justice, uh, justice and transnational governance. What's special about the state? And uh, the, here's one I haven't read, but I really want to. Local food, the moral case. Um, and most recently, an article that I think will give you some sense of um, why we're so excited to have her today, uh, Narrative and Meaning in Life. And with a drum roll, I will say the book that Helena has chosen to discuss with us is. So it's a sketch of the past. It's by Virginia Woolf. Uh, you can find it in a collection of autobiographical writing uh, that was published in the 70s, I think, um, called Moments of Being. Uh, so this is an a unfinished, fragmentary memoir that uh, Virginia Woolf wrote between 1939 and 1940, over the course of about a year or so. Um, and she intended just to write it for a couple of days, but it took over. So a part of what's amusing about reading it is that 
half the time she's saying, I really should be writing my biography of Roger Fry, but I'm doing this instead. And she sort of compulsively <laughs> starts writing. <laughs> but I'm really bored of Roger's life. Yeah, I'm so, so. over Roger. Um, so she just found herself really caught up in uh, writing uh, this this work about her life. Um, I think it's very interesting for lots of reasons. We're going to get into those. Um, can't help but see it in my my own current research interests that John was talking about. Uh, I guess sort of a couple of different threads there. Uh, one is this question about what the connection might be between personal narration, so storytelling about your own life and meaning in life. Um, could it be that telling a story somehow makes your life more meaningful? Does it uncover meaning that pre-existed the story? So there's questions there. I think they come up in this in this book because part of what Wolf is doing is asking himself, why am I doing this? What's the value mm -hmm. of doing this when I've been writing fiction for so long? Um, and yeah, actually, Helena, can I jump in on that? Because yeah. obviously as a, you know, so one of the advantages of this podcast is that we all come to these things from our peculiar vantage point. Right. And so for me, you know, as someone who's taught Wolf's fiction for so long and I had never read this amazing piece yeah. written almost at the end of her life, I was struck by all the pieces that, like George Eliot talks about having a quarry for which she mines for fiction, yeah. and clearly like what we're getting is like the biographical quarry that she then turned into fiction. So, you know, reading it, my experience of reading it was to think about, oh, well, these are the stories that she used to make her world overall meaningful. They just happened, you know, but they're ones that happened to her. Right, yeah. yeah, and she also talks explicitly about those moments she had growing up. She calls them moments of being, yeah. the time of the collection. But she has this sort of epiphanic moment. Sometimes it's just a, a very simple kind of sensory event. It's not mm -hmm. sort of like a complicated um, occasion. Um, she suddenly has this sense of sort of revelation, of some kind of order in the universe. Mm -hmm. And there's just this really interesting passage where she continues describing, trying to understand what it is that's so significant about mm -hmm. those moments. And she talks about the way it feels that there's a certain kind of order that she is discovering in, in writing about it. It comes together. And I think a lot yeah. of what people feel when they're writing a memoir, writing about their lives, is that sense they're putting together these pieces um, and discovering some structure. Um, and for her, she says it's the greatest pleasure known to her to do that. One thing I find so fascinating about it, though, is that there are these moments of her sense of that limitation. Like she has this one part where she describes a memory of seeing herself in the mirror right. and feeling badly ashamed and sort of wrong. And, you know, she tries to figure out why that might be, that maybe it has to do with sort of people talking about her mother's beauty and her sister's beauty and, and you know, connecting it to other parts of her life. And then she says, but I don't really know why. And it makes me think, you know, if you can't even tell these things about yourself, how can you <laughs> yeah. presume to, you know, have sort of some understanding of what other people are doing? Right, you know? yeah. That's yeah. one of the moments where she's talking about the, like, the singular difficulties of this form, you know, that yeah. she's discovering. Um, you don't, it's a very simple moment. It's her own life. There are multiple explanations <laughs> for it. You can't yeah. get to the bottom of them. Yeah, and she says, so and I have no reason to lie, and yet I don't know why. Right. You know? Yeah. 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 yeah, so there's that difficulty. And then she talks about other, right, the first 20 pages or so really about these questions about the special challenges of mm -hmm. writing a life um, truthfully, I suppose. So, yeah, the fact that there were many, many memories you could choose from, um, the fact that you don't really know yourself, you don't know others, you know, all these questions yeah. about 
the fallibility of memory, mm -hmm. the shiftiness of the self. Yeah. Can I read a sentence that really struck me from early on, which is, um, she says, memoirs are failures because they leave out the person to whom things happened, mm -hmm. the reasons that it's so difficult to describe any human being. So they say, this is what happened, but they do not say what the person was like to whom it happened. Yeah. So that seems like one discrepancy she's dealing with is that there's the level of actuality in the world, but then there's the who underneath. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing she's dealing with is the present and the past. And I know that's like two different dimensions, so that's complicated, but just to put it out there. <laughs> right. Because yeah. she's also saying that the problem of recalling the past is predicated on having a present that's like still and calm enough that you can get back to that yeah, past. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think what part of what's interesting about this work is that she seems to me to be at the beginning of uh, the, I don't know, the history of the modern memoir, I think. Obviously, yeah. people have been writing about their lives for a very long time. Julius Caesar did it, so yeah. autobiographical writing stretches all the way back. But memoir as we know it now is, has a narrower kind of connotation than, or meaning than autobiography. It's about the inner life a lot yeah. of the time rather than mm -hmm. external events. Yeah. It's fragmentary in the way yeah. that hers is. She talks yeah. too, so this, this question you raised about the present and the past self. Yeah. She mentions how, she's, as she's writing, I, I think I'm discovering the form for these notes. You know, I, need, I need to include my present self alongside the past yes. self. The I now and the I then, you know, there's this distinction that gets made between the voice of innocence and the voice of experience. I think mm -hmm. Sarah Silverman um, who put it that way, where in memoir now we expect to include that kind of mature reflective voice, even in the telling of the earlier um, material. And she's mm -hmm. very aware of that. And that's what adds this sort of depth to yeah. the story. She often starts off these entries she's writing with yeah. a little description of what she's doing, and then she goes back into the past mm -hmm. and moves back and forth. Yeah, in fact, way. even the way she uses dates is sometimes kind of confusing. Totally. Because it's, yeah. is she talking about the past or the present? Right, yeah. I mean, I, that was one thing that really struck me. There's actually a cyclical quality for time. I mean, I really hope that people who are listening to this are gonna go out and read this <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> piece so of writing. Good. But it's about, she's really thinking about the death of her mother, which I believe was in early 1884 or something, but she's mm -hmm. writing in 1939, yeah. and the dates align, so it's like, as she isn't, don't I have that right? Like as she writes in April of '39, she's thinking about April of right. 1884 when her mom was dying. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I don't have those dates wrong. But yeah, so that it's it's almost like a there's almost sounds like a religious yeah. conception there of yeah. you know August April Cyclic. brings me yeah. back. Yeah, to exactly. That. Yeah. So that I just wanted to bring up one other passage because I think it um, kind of pulls against the idea that you brought up in the introduction, which was that you know the past only becomes meaningful or your life becomes more meaningful as you tell it. Yeah. Because there's this extremely poignant thing about her, about writing to the lighthouse mm -hmm. and how, you know, from when her mother died when she was, I think, 13 mm -hmm. to when she wrote to the lighthouse when she was about 44, mm. um, she was obsessed with her mother and she couldn't stop thinking about her mother and then she kind of like wrote it in a rush. Yeah. And could no longer, and no, not only stopped thinking about her mother, but couldn't really remember her as well. And there's this, you know, very, she doesn't explicitly say, and I'm sad about this, but it has this very sad quality. And at one point she's, you know, she sort of goes on to say, and, I, and I'd like to write about her more, but, it, but if I did, I might not, I might remember her even less. Mm. It's kind of yeah, the opposite right. of what. Um, yes. I'm opposed to that. 
<laughs> to me, that's you're, romanticism, and I have a problem with that. You're yeah. opposed to her saying. I'm, I believe that. Like that seems like an accurate account of her own experience. But what I like about writers like Wolf, and, and we haven't right. talked about Proust yet, but obviously, right. one of the great things about this piece is it brings up the relationship between Wolf and Proust as two modernists who are grappling with memoir and life in a fictional form. Yes. You know that, that that's right. a interwar project or something. The reason I'm opposed to it is that I feel like what somebody like Wolf does that's so great is she thinks about the ways in which experience as like kind of pure being is also always articulated articulated through kind of memory, memory conceptualization, and having an idea about yes. it. Yeah, yes, yes. exactly. Yeah, but I think both things are true are in the text, right? Definitely. And there's yeah. a reason that people respond in Proust, they respond to the notion of like the taste of the Madeleine or something. Right, like right. because the nostalgic allure of perfect recall is totally there right. in Wolf and in and also and sort of Proust. uncapturable. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. One of the things I find really interesting about this piece is how sort of her struggles with the artificiality of what she's doing. She often, <laughs> maybe yeah. not struggle, she's just noticing you yeah. know, as she's writing. She'll say things like, you know, I'm almost te tempted to br drag in my grandfather right. now, you know. Yeah, right. Or she'll right. say, you know, oh, that's great. Yeah. to make an end here where yeah. no end actually exists. Yeah. So yeah. she feels the sense, and her, her tendency to make scenes out of the past, she mentions too. And she says, I know I do this in my fiction. It's the way I remember it, things. It, yeah. Did she imagine this as intended for publication? Do you know? I think that um, she didn't at the beginning. Yeah. But as she moved on, it seemed that she was, she kept saying things like, I'm going to return to this winter. Yeah. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. seeing how this is going to be shaped. So maybe yeah. in the future she... Could, could I, got, oh, sorry, I feel ahead. like because, you know, right from the beginning by talking about other memoirs, it seems there's some self-consciousness about this as something that other people would read. Right. But the tone is very non-self-conscious, you know? Right. It just seems so intimate. Yeah. It's, and, yeah. you know, and she'll say things like, oh, I could check when I published The Lighthouse, right. but I don't feel like doing it right now. Right. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> I was like, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, 27. That's what I would ask her, yeah. you know? I'll yeah. go back to this later. But, um, yeah. you know, because I was going to say, apropos of that, though, I really like, um, it reminded me of, when Wittgenstein critiques himself, I really like what she said about her early essays, that her common reader essays were too Victorian, mm -hmm. that she felt ashamed of the kind of rounded, she, I think she calls it the tea table quality of her writing. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that because I agree with her about that. Like, I don't like her essays at all and that this doesn't seem like them. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's kind of why, whether, why I wondered whether she was at a different, whether this is just what her private writing is like, right. or whether she's actually at a different stage with this sort of writing. Yeah, it's mm. hard to know. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's, 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 yeah, reading it knowing that she died a few months after finishing. I know, it just painful. Adds a right. whole, I mean, she, that's another sort of art, source of artificiality she mentions yes. that, you know, when you know that later on that, you know, her brother died, and so when she's writing mm. about her yeah. brother, she says there's this kind of mouth of foreboding that yeah. I feel in my voice as I write about him, and I can't yeah. take it out. I but know. at the time, you know, I didn't know this was going to happen. So there's right. something false about the way that I'm describing it. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's hard not to read this in that way, too, knowing yeah. where she's heading. Yeah. I mean, uh, so another question, because I, I know one of the directions we're heading here is to think about, like, this this recent labeling of a certain kind of fiction as autofiction, meaning, like, we now have these authors who unashamedly say what I'm doing is, like, writing my own life as fiction. Mm. It's just, uh, Helena, I'd just love to get your thought, your sort of philosophical thoughts or your philosophy of art thoughts about, you know, just what it means that a piece like this allows us to see how much of Wolf's fiction is her own life. I mean, it is a form of life writing. 
like her fiction too is a right. public library. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this connects to these sort of questions about gender you were raising. You know, is this <laughs> some people worry about the way in which um, women writing autofiction are treated versus men writing autofiction, mm-hmm. as they call it, right? Right. It's, this worry that when women do it, there's some kind of denigrating of the value of, mm-hmm. of their work, whereas when men do yeah. it, there isn't. Because I think there still is this mm-hmm. greater valorization of fiction over nonfiction, like memoir as a subgenre. Mm-hmm. Less so than it used to be, but it's still yeah. good. Mm-hmm. If you want to really be an artist, a literary artist, you have to write a novel, right? right. Yeah. And so when women end up writing fiction that has autobiographical elements, um, that mm-hmm. can be seen as a problem, you know? Um, that so it's still accomplished. Right, something. yeah, whereas when you know Talisgard exaggerated some ways. I was going to say, it's Talisgard. <laughs> it's funny because, like, in Wolf's <laughs> era, we're talking about Proust, and Proust is not exactly occupying, like, the kind of zero, you know, he's not occupying the dominant male status. I mean, there's yeah. something right. weirdly marginalized about what Proust is doing, right. but when Knausgaard does it, you're right. I mean, right, he calls his book My Struggle. I mean, so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But this, yeah, yeah, I think in her case, I mean, that this, that obviously, the, her writing is predates that particular. Um, debate, I think it can be seen as a feminist act to write the memoirs yeah. at the early, mm-hmm. you know, in that period because so many men were doing it. It was right. much less common. I guess there's a sense that as a woman, your life is not interesting yeah. enough to write right. about. I'm sure right. Wilf did not have that view that her life yeah. was not interesting enough. But um, in general, there's this sense that it's a, I don't know, it's an empowering act to do it, to mm-hmm. get your books out there as a woman in a yeah. way which mm-hmm. maybe isn't so much for a guy. So do you want to move on to talking about this? About Rachel Cuss. Yeah. yeah, maybe we should. Yeah, John yeah. Has, a bit, is, has doubts about Rachel. I, I do. I love her. But you do. <laughs> I okay, shouldn't be well, calling you Rachel. That's not, yeah. You're supposed to use the surname. So yeah, so sexist. okay, just, right. So, the yeah. book, so we chose Rachel Cusk, who is a contemporary writer and very much one of the autofiction people. Mm-hmm. And um, she was born in 67, and she wrote a bunch of novels young, but then the things that people remember her for is this new trilogy, the Outline mm-hmm. Trilogy outline transit and then the most recent one called kudos and we decided to talk about kudos i really feel like you should start off Melana, because you've got the more appreciative account of her (laughs) i think i mean she's a polarizing figure um so she has sort of interesting trajectory um given our conversation today so she started out writing fiction she wrote um several novels in a fairly traditional mode Mm -hmm. um they were maybe a little bit overwritten, I think people now think. Yeah. Very, very different style from her current prose style. Yeah. And she became frustrated with that form, partly for feminist reasons. She felt that it was very gendered. She didn't sort of feel she could really stand the canon anymore. Mm-hmm. She moved away from fiction to memoir, wrote three memoirs, which were very, um, very honest. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I received, haven't read those, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, they received some very critical reviews. And did um, they have to do with similar themes and topics as No, it's a pretty, well, I think she's always been interested in family life. So the mm-hmm. memoirs were about her family, about raising children, mm-hmm. uh, then a trip to, I think, Italy with her husband, with her family, and then her divorce. That was maybe the most controversial one. Right. Um, and... The reaction to them was so extreme that she says she feels that the, the form malfunctioned for her hmm. um, and hmm. she was unable to write for three years. It oh, just wow. catapulted her into silence. Hmm. Um, and then she thought, well, the old not the fiction didn't work for me, memoir didn't work for me, what can I do now? She decided she needed to reinvent the novel or create yeah. a new form. And I think mm-hmm. often that's a kind of grandiose claim, mm-hmm. but I think she actually did mm-hmm. um, in this case. So she needed a form that was not fiction and not memoir, some kind of mm-hmm. combination. So she came up with this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and is the term autofiction her term? No, she didn't invent it. No, mm-hmm. I think it was invented in the 1970s, actually, okay. by some French 
theorist. Um, I'm not sure if she likes that yes, term. Yes, Serge Dumas. How about that? Wow, I did yeah, not know that. Yeah, look at that. 1977 with his um, novel Sun. Yeah. Wow. People are a bit antsy about the term, so I'm not sure if she mm. would claim it, but she certainly is one of the main people. Uh-huh. People discuss it about her now. Um, so anyway. She- Sheila Hetty is another who I Right, right. yeah. yeah. Um, I think people in general, um, most people think the form is very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So it's this sort of sometimes called negative literature or sort of passive mm. narration. Uh, right. So the narrator is really only shown via this act of listening, right? So each of these three books involve these extended monologues, really, mm-hmm. on the part of people that the narrator, say, comes across. Um, and she has very few uh, sort of responses, but she's created via, um, via this structure. So right. in, a, it's a negative space, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very interesting way to write uh, a novel. I think people also appreciate her prose. It's very spare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think the main criticisms are ethical ones, really, um, of different kinds with the, the memoirs and also with the fiction. Um, there's, uh, there's sort of a, a bunch of worries. One, I think, is about the kind of cruelty that she displays in describing mm-hmm. um, some of her characters. She's often very, um, kind of physical descriptions in particular yes. are quite vicious. Oh. So part of it is about, in the memoir, was about revealing facts about her life. Uh, right. So about real people being right. I, I, Kanowski got caught up in that, too, didn't he? Yeah. Wasn't he, like, sued by his uncle or right, something? Right, yeah. yeah. So this yeah. kind of betrayal of real people, betrayal of the characters in some wow. way, or at least kind of pitiless portrayal of them. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, Helena. Can I ask you more about that? Just, like, in the... So you're talking about reviews. So yeah. the account was... I totally get the account that says it's cruel to real people to reveal this stuff about them, yeah. but you're saying it was also... <laughs> That the, she was mean to her characters? It's more the, I guess, maybe sort of the view um, of humanity that's expressed yeah. by her description. Right. It's sort of like, yeah, um, there's a kind of disgust often or yeah. a description that's ghoulish or ghastly and so right. on. Right. Um, I read somewhere that she herself was very, very critical of her own body growing up, and so she was mm-hmm. sort of yeah. disgusted by herself, and so unfortunately that's sort of come out as disgust yes, that's what I noticed about right. others. Yeah, yeah. So partly I think it's that, but then I think it really... It might be a little bit of Nighthole, Vera's Nighthole's description. Oh, uh, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the real, I mean, maybe this is what troubles you, I'm not sure, John, the real ethical concern seems to be about her worldview. It's just very dark. It's this extremely dark mm-hmm. vision. Um, in particular about family life. She's really sort of yeah. given up in books anyway yeah. on the possibility of a functional egalitarian, yeah. um, mutually supportive heterosexual relationship. Yeah. Um, it's just Or dark. even like the presence yeah. of affection. Or yeah, like everyone's divorced. The ex-husbands <laughs> treat the children horribly. The, the mothers, you know, are totally unsympathetic. You know, yeah. It's just awful. Yeah. I, don't, I don't read yeah. it as finally being that sort of nihilistic mm-hmm. but yeah. I know many people do um, that's really interesting I have to say like my reaction to it uh, you've made me change my thinking about the coldness of her because I'm a huge fan as Elizabeth knows of Doris Lessing yeah. and I do like Doris Lessing's coldness a lot and mm-hmm. I actually think Doris Lessing as an autofiction character is extremely interesting especially novels like The Golden Notebook where clearly she's just like processing quarrying her own life at a great rate and I don't mind the um, intensity of detachment and coldness in in her I I 
like what I feel about cusp is that it's a response to just what seems to me kind of clumsy technique. Like I just see her as taking a series of Polaroids and they don't seem like interestingly woven together. It's huh. just like, oh, and then there was this other, yeah, it's like mm -hmm. one jerk after another. And I just feel like anybody who's been in a department meeting knows that it's really easy to make other people look bad, you know? <laughs> like you can always find the unsympathetic side of other people. That's probably the easiest thing to do is to pick other people's motives apart. And so my feeling about Rachel Cusk is that's what she's doing. She's just, like yeah. That, that yeah. feels too easy to you yeah. or something? I, I yeah. mean, I feel yeah. like it's more complicated than that, yeah. though, because I feel, maybe this is a projection, but yeah. I always feel that there's empathy there. Some people get skewered. Yeah. Like at the beginning of Kudos, the guy on the plane, yeah. you know. Yeah, that's mainly, the passage I brought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just, but, it's just yeah. It's kind of awful. But yeah. even that guy, there's this <laughs> like manspreading and mansplaining at all. Yeah, all he's like, awful. Yeah. Yeah. And the men in general do not come yeah. across well. Certainly the men don't come across well. That's but fair. some of them do. Yeah. So in this one, the guide, uh, the guide to the city mm. seems to be on the spectrum, the young oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. guy. I think he yeah. comes across very sympathetically. Yeah. He's the only person who really, all these characters are just, mm -hmm. you know, talking at her. Like she's yeah. engaging. Well, the writer, in, the woman writer is, I mean, she's described and she sort of describes herself in ways that are very negative. But she comes across as having a lot of humor. Linda, and yeah, kind of, she's yeah, hilarious. Like, yeah. yeah, this woman who's been on tour so long that she's, she's getting going through the stages like, of aging. <laughs> yes. Her dress has become like her apartment. Right. Yeah, she's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. I don't know, I feel like there's empathy right through it. I feel like there's empathy for the characters and mm -hmm. what they're revealing. I think there's sort of empathy for us, or at least women, having to listen to men talking about mm. themselves. <laughs> yeah. So that well, kind of comes through. Yeah, and maybe I empathy, I don't know. Um, we have some empathy for her, imagine her listening. I, 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 there, mm -hmm. there are layers to it that I feel well, I think we do have, from the harshness. I mean, I mean, just the point about having sympathy, or having empathy for her, I guess we could talk about sympathy and empathy, but I actually feel like the fact that we are meant to identify with her at the center of it doesn't necessarily make me feel any warmer about it because then it's again to go back to the department metaphor that's like what people do when they feel really good about themselves and bad about everybody around them like if i really felt like she felt you know if she was like including herself in this account i, I think i might feel differently about it but that isn't what i feel again i might be wrong but yeah. what i feel is that this is like a scathing anatomy which i also feel endorse lessing but the thing that redeems Lessing for me is that I feel like it is immensely subtle. Like what Lessing is doing is, you know, she doesn't give anyone a break, but she is willing to like sort out and just articulate yeah. one set of feelings from another. Whereas in Cusk, I just feel like, oh, it's the same rhythm just over yeah. and over again. I mean, yeah. I, w I was kind of befuddled by it, so I'll say that. But, but I think as we're talking, I'm realizing that one thing I sort of liked about it maybe was that you know, you, there's this implicit idea that the listener is noticing and somehow choosing by what they notice. And so the insistence comes to feel like depression or something, right? Like that there's this sort of ins like heaviness on the part of the listener, which is making things sound right. shitty. You know? It's coloring like the whole it's world. It's making yeah. everything mm. seem shitty, right? right. And, and that that is... Maybe that's what you were describing as the sort of the negative space of the right. subject. Right? Yeah, because yeah. there is that sort of penetration of her voice into everything, too. Because yeah. even yeah. when she's reporting a suite, which she's doing most of the time, um, it's, her voice is in there. There's this kind of homogenizing yeah. tendency. Right. 
everyone starts sounding like her, even totally. people who yeah. clearly shouldn't sound like her, like yeah. the register or the syntax is way right. too complicated for yeah. the plain guy. Yeah. 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 And then we shift yeah. back to his voice, so you do get the sense that, yeah, yeah. it's very yeah. much... Wait, how does that not bother you? I love it. You do? I find it really yeah. interesting. I mean, part of it, I think, I just find it so funny, so much that I find very funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And part of it is that shift between registers. I find that funny across the board. I yeah. love it when people move from something that's at some kind of, I don't know, I don't want to call it a low diction yeah. or low con- it increases our sense of her own alienation once we realize yeah. that even if she's listening, yeah. she's not listening to herself. She's trapped in this right. kind of perspective. She can't get out. I find that yeah. empathy generating rather than alienating. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I just relate to I think that. I'm liking it more <laughs> as we're talking yeah. about it. Well, I think it's, yeah. It's good to think with. <laughs> How would you compare it to Wolf? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I guess I was thinking as sort of leading up to this that all three of the books that we were reading are all quite dark. Um, and <laughs> if Virginia's Wolf memoir that she wrote just before she committed suicide is the lightest thing that you're reading, you've yeah, got right. a problem, you've got right? A problem, right? Yeah. So um, there is sort of darkness to um, to both of them. Um, but also, I think you know, this searing intelligence in the background that adds yeah. the um, even when they're talking about dark things, there's something um, I don't know exhilarating about that, about the use of this sort of elegance of of form, I guess in response mm-hmm. to um, really traumatic mm-hmm. events, I find that. I didn't, thing. Uh, the form didn't feel elegant to me, I would say. Um, but what maybe about the sentence, though? At the sentence level, I feel like the sentences are very I like well. the spareness, oh. yeah. Um, there was something, maybe I just hadn't learned enough how to read it yet, but there was something, I also had the feeling that John had of sort of like, like, I want you to do a little here to tell me where I am. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. It's interesting. We're going to do a podcast in a a few weeks about uh, John Lanchester, his new novel, The Wall. And I feel like both it and Cusk are really influenced by Kazuo Isuguru. You know, like there's a kind of flat affect on Uh the level of sentence. Yeah. Like a refusal to interiorize, which is obviously very different from Wolf. Um, But it's interesting to think about whether that's a rejection of Wolf or... I kind of feel like you're but making the case that it's more like an extension of like some experiment she's already doing has as its outcome this sort of flat affect. You know? But she did yeah. actually write, well, apparently one of her f- early novels was a version of Mrs. Dalloway. Really? So, yeah. Oh, wow. I haven't wow. Read That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I feel like Ishiguro is different though because he's, there's a refusal to interiorize, but there's a, the interiority is painfully obvious to the reader, right? I mean, the, the sort of unreliable narrator who is not going to, you know, admit the their complicity in, you know, Japanese imperial art, for instance. Oh, right? yeah, you're talking about Artists of the Floating, Artist world. Of the floating I world. I absolutely right? love that book. Yeah, I agree. I think that's but I do think as, she, as he oh. goes forward, like, I think as something later, like Never Let Me Go or The Sleeping Giant, I, mm-hmm. they're just like, he's, sim- he's simplifying his world. But there's always something underneath that's more complex yes. that's being denied. Whereas this doesn't seem like that. That's this seems like it's all there. Yeah, yeah. It's all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting. I, we live in a behaviorist moment. I mean, it's like it yes. is very fashionable now <laughs> to believe that there's nothing there. So yeah, I get that. 
And I and I admire <laughs> that, people who can. That, that, that is, yeah. all, is all of us there. Yeah. I mean, one thing yeah. that I think is sort of, sort of connects to the general theme of our conversation, but Wolf too, is in these books there, there is this question about what stories are for or whether it's possible to mm. tell a story. Yeah. yeah. So the narrator se- says at some point, maybe not in this book, but an early one, that she's given up on stories. She doesn't believe in them yeah. anymore. She just right. doesn't. She thinks that all narratives are false. Some yeah. of the interviews, right. I want to say interviews, some of the right. interlocutors also um, yeah. sort of have that concern about the falsity of stories and conversation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's this question about whether it's possible. Of course, the people she's talking to are very invested in oh stories. Yes, They're right. telling them all the time. Right. Right. And yeah. they have sometimes this kind of perfect narrative structure, yeah. yes. like the Bell's story. Yeah. starts yeah. with the bells and then towards the bells suddenly come back and it's raining and there's this cataclysmic moment it's it very right. much feels like a short story yeah. shaped yeah. but yeah, um, yeah there's a kind of falsity to it and she yeah. said some interview that i read that she she thinks that after you've been through a period of great suffering which she did go through a divorce it seems um that it becomes impossible to really trust stories anymore it becomes ridiculous to mm. invent john and jack and get them to do things uh, together, um, she thinks it seems massively artificial, and that's mm. why she moved away from fiction. Yeah. She needed some new kind of form. She doesn't mm-hmm. believe in the stories. The whole thing is kind of commenting on the artificiality of stories via yeah. storytelling. Yeah. So this is a great moment to turn to um, our recallable books, uh, mm-hmm. which is a recommendation for further related um, reading on the topic, and along with the books we discussed today, and also the various digressions that we went down. There will be links to those on our website. Um, uh, along with other material. So um, uh, maybe, Elizabeth, do you want to start off with Yeah, I was thinking of a book, um, also a kind of uh, genre-bending book by an anthropologist. Um, In this case, the anthropologist Renata Rosaldo, who wrote a book called The Day of Shelley's Death, which is a book of poems um, that he, it was published maybe in 2016, I want to say. And it's about... um, a day in October, I believe, of 1981, when his wife, the anthropologist Michelle Rosaldo, um, fell to her death from a mountain in the Philippines um, moments after having left the house that she and he and their two um, quite small children were staying. And, uh, you know, this is something that he's written about. He actually republishes an essay called Grief and the, Head Hunt- and the Headhunter's Ridge uh, in the book, um, along with a lot of poems about about the day, and they're quite focused on the day and the days that follow from a whole bunch of different perspectives, including his own and uh, various people in the village. One gets the feeling, and uh, I believe he says this as well, that it sort of could, you could only write about this in this kind of a way, you know, 30 years or almost 40 years ago. There's this sort of sense of distance and kind of the ability to kind of begin to approach this, to tell stories about it in an extended way. And also that it sort of either exceeds or needs to be reduced to a poetic form of, of thinking about it. So awesome. I, I highly recommend it. That sounds great. And um, Lynn? Uh, yeah, I'd like to recommend this book called Memoir, an introduction, or maybe just Memoir, by Thomas Cowser. Uh, it's a mixture of a bunch of different things. Um, some of it is just a history of the genre, the memoir as we know it today, mm-hmm. sort of setting it in um, a bit of a historical context. Some of it is what you might think of as literary studies, so what, why this genre should matter to us, why genre matters in general. Um, and then there are some philosophical sections too, or chapters about 
ethical issues that arise in the course of writing about mm. memoir to do mm. with truth telling, what sort of truth is at issue yeah. Yeah. in nonfiction, mm. what kind of truth telling responsibility do writers right. in nonfiction have. Um, well, we haven't talked about the moth at all. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, but also questions um, about the responsibility to those you write about in nonfiction. Yeah. So that relates to what we're talking about with Rachel Cust. Um, so, yeah, just a really nice, compact discussion of what I think are some of the key conceptual and, and evaluative questions in this area. And it's really well written, which is the pleasure to read. That's, yeah. that's yeah. great. And so my recommendation is totally um, in response to being so blown away by uh, Wolf's sketch of the past. It's a contemporaneous, which is George Orwell's 1937 book, Road to Wigan Pier, which is also bound up in these problems of truth-telling and facticity um, and actuality. So, you know, mm -hmm. you, you may remember it, like it's his book after Down and Out of Paris and London. It's a description of working-class life in, in the North. You may remember it's about miners. He goes down the mines. There's this sort of sense of, like, the gap between his life and working-class life. But what you might forget is there's an incredible break in the middle in which he says, in order to make sense of this, you actually need to know about me. Mm -hmm. So he turns to memoir as a way of justifying the entire ethical project of getting to know these people who he's marking as very different from him. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that incredibly poignant. And I would also say my friend Alex Wallach has written an incredible book called Or Orwell. Um, no, he did not stutter, Or Orwell, um, which is kind of about the generic uh, braveness of that kind of move. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's just really interesting for thinking about. I do think it's Rachel Cusk-like territory, that question of, like, where yourself is present in mm -hmm. the account you offer of the life. Mm -hmm. um, great. Um, well, Helena, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank we have you. to have you back. Great. This is yeah. a great, great conversation. Time. I don't yeah. want to stop. <laughs> yeah. um, so I will just say now that, recall, this book is hosted, um, uh, Come Toujours, by John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Uh, music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is done by uh, our undergraduate intern, Claire Ogden. And website design and social media are done by Matthew Schratz, uh, recently graduated from the Brandeis English Department. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticism, or suggestions for future episodes. Email us directly or contact us via social media or our website. Finally, and I cannot say this passionately and beseechingly enough, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You may be interested in checking out past episodes, including topics like opiate addiction, minimalism, old and new media, as well as interviews with Samuel Delaney and Madeline Miller. So from all of us at Recall This Book, thanks for listening. Newsflash. There's a bonus portion to the conversation. Helena and Elizabeth and I also discussed Exit Zero, which is a fantastic ethnography by Christine Whaley about social mobility and the stories that people growing up in poor areas or neighborhoods tell to explain why they stay or why they go. You can find that bonus conversation exclusively on our website, recallthisbook.org, along with a host of other goodies like an essay by Elizabeth about minimalism and links to material we discussed in the show. So head over there to check it out after the episode.